So how many of you in here like a good movie? Got any other movie buffs in here? Yeah, I'm, you know, I, I have to admit, you could probably, if you really know, like, Hollywood quotes, you could probably have a conversation with me and nothing but movie quotes, and it would make sense. But what is it that makes a good story? There's something called, you know, in, in script writing and even storytelling, setup and payoff. You know, there's the setup, and it's where everything gets put in place, and, and it's where the, the, almost the, the bad news, and it looks like the, uh, the, the bad guy's going to win, or they've got the upper hand, and then what happens? There's, there's always this, this shift, and you sense it, and you feel it in the story, and it's like, okay, now things are starting to move along. And you know, that's exactly what Paul is doing with us in Ephesians. He, he set us up. And he did that last week. He told us we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we used to walk. Following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, and that we all lived in the passions of our flesh. I mean, it, he, he gave us the bad news that, look, we were all slaves to sin. And then this week, he continues in, in this section in Ephesians 2 and starts with the words, but God. There's the shift. We were lost in trespasses and sin, but God had other plans. But God did something unexpected, did something different. God did not respond as we would have responded. Now, how many of you can say amen to that? You know, how many of you in here would have, you know, been done with yourself a long time ago? But God is like, no, no, but God isn't like me. But God isn't done. And so what Paul now wants to show us is just how rich a blessing we have in Christ Jesus. But we have to understand the first. We have to get through last week's sermon first of we are dead in trespasses and sins. Dead. But God stepped in. And what he did is not only he saved us, not only has he sealed us with the Holy Spirit, but he has, as Paul is going to say, seated us with Christ. Seated with Christ. That just sounds wrong, doesn't it? Seated with Christ, a sinful, broken, rebellious human beings seated with Christ. Where is Christ seated? He's at the right hand of the Father on high. And Paul uses this phrase and says, we are seated with Christ. And it begins with the words, but God. So look with me. In Ephesians 2, verses 4 through 10, at what God has done for us. It says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. 
It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This may be the most important section of Scripture in the entire book of Ephesians. Because everything flows out of this truth that he said right here. Everything. If we are going to understand the book of Ephesians properly, this is the section that we really have to nail down in heart and mind. And then the rest of it really starts to make sense. The rest of it all flows from this. And there really is a lesson here in this is that most of the time in reading Scripture, what we need to do is understand the theme of the book first, and then we can understand the individual arguments. And many times we want to do that backwards. We want to start interpreting individual verses and just keep going, not ever understanding. There's a reason that Ephesians was written. And the theme of the book is found in this section. And everything always flows from the center point of that theme into all of the other arguments. And so my advice to you on reading Scripture is do what, what I've heard called is go from the whole to the parts back to the whole. If it's not a super long book... You know, a short letter like Ephesians is easily done. Read the whole thing in one sitting. And read the whole thing enough times until you get the theme, until you can find it. Most of the time, they come right out and tell you in the book what this thing's written for. Read the whole thing until you find the theme. Once you identify the theme, then go in and start separating out the arguments. See how they build their case. And then, after you've seen the arguments and you see the outline, then go back and read the whole thing again. I'm telling you, it will revolutionize how you read Scripture and understand it. Somebody taught me that in college. I don't even remember who. I'm going to have to thank them when I get to heaven. I, again, I have no idea where I even got it from, but it's something that stuck and has affected me ever since then. And so, let's look at what Paul has to say about this, because he starts off with the foundation of mercy, love, and grace. He uses these words as the foundation of God's actions toward us. They are the foundation. This is why God has done what he did for us. It's why he treats us the way he treats us. It's why he has set up the future for us that he has for us. And he said again, but God, not us, What was our situation? Dead in trespasses and sins, in which we used to walk according to the prince of the power of the air, following the course of this world, children of wrath, deserving death. That's where we, dead, deserving punishment. That's who we were. Every one of us, please lock that in. Nobody can come to God and say, oh no, that wasn't me. That's where we all start. But where did God start? Paul says, but God, rich, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. What God did. Two of the greatest words in the Bible, but God. Just when Paul talks about us being dead in trespasses and sins, walking with the world, following the prince of the power of the air, to destruction, we read, but God. And what does he do? He draws from his own mercy, motivated by his own love for us. 
Nothing was forcing God's hand. God was not going to be lonely without us. He did not need us. But drawing from his own character, Paul tells us being great, being rich in mercy, and because of his great love that he has towards us. You know what this means? This means God's posture towards us from the beginning has been one of mercy and love. That's his posture towards us. Have you ever met somebody that had a a standoffish kind of posture towards you? And and you walk away and you're like, I wonder what their problem was. You you know, I mean, you really didn't know. You're just like, did I say something? Did I do something? Why, why Why are they hostile towards me? I can just sense it. God's posture towards us from the very beginning of creation has been one of love and mercy. He is not hostile towards us, though we have been hostile towards him. God's motivation has been mercy and love. And his reason for everything that he has done is the result of who he is. Namely, being rich in mercy and possessing a love greater than we can understand. That's the foundation of everything that he does. And when we come to understand that and we don't look and try to relate to God like he's a person in this world. Because yes, God loves us. And yes, Jesus called us our, you know, his friends. He called his disciples his friends. But look, God is so much more than your bestie. Okay, and we have to get to a place where we understand that. God loves you dearly, and he loves you more than you'll ever understand. And we can walk in that love and be comfortable. And he even says he wants us to boldly enter into the throne room of grace. But that does not lessen who he is. He is almighty God, worthy of all praise and honor. And when we enter into that throne room, we better have a posture of, I'm about to bend my knee before the king. We are only alive Because of God's love and mercy. God could have the instant Adam and Eve sinned. He could have wiped out creation and said, well, they sinned. And you know what? He would have been perfectly justified. There would have been no sin. There would have been no darkness in him for that. But he chose because he is rich in mercy. And because of the love that he has for us, he chose not to. Now, how does that change? And I want you to really think about this. How does that change the way you think about God? If we really, every time we come to him, we have the understanding that, yes, he loves me. Yes, he has great mercy towards me. And yes, he should have killed me a long time ago. It changes things. It it pushes us into the realm of gratitude, but also it gets rid of this kind of trying to to goad or or push God into doing the things we want him to do. You know, we can't, we we don't use prayer then as this thing to try to get stuff from God or to try to manipulate God or play gotcha with God. Well, your word said God, so I'm claiming it and you have to do it. Let me tell you something. God didn't have to do anything. When it comes to us, what is his posture towards us? We got to be very grateful. Paul says, because he is rich in mercy... And what is the word mercy? That means he withholds judgment when he could rightfully execute it. Mercy is when we choose to overlook that which we have a right to prosecute. 
God's posture towards us is one of mercy, which means we have, we deserve prosecution. If God is choosing mercy, then that means he is not choosing harsh judgment. And when we come to God, when that is our understanding of God from the outset, that yes, he loves me dearly. If he didn't, I wouldn't be here. His posture is one of mercy, but if I fully embrace that, then when I go to God, I'm not going to be looking to get things. I'm going to be saying thank you for the things that I have. It will change my heart and mind. But here's the great thing about this. Paul, it doesn't just stop there. He says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, and then he, he takes a turn and he says, even when we were dead in our trespasses. Even when we were dead in our trespasses. You see, God didn't wait for us to figure out our need for him. Now, how many of you in here can testify to that, that God came after you before you knew you needed him? It, it, were, were you highly receptive to it the first time? Most of the time we're not. Most of the time we're like, oh, I don't need that. My life is fine. I am so happy. You know, I mean, we, we, we just don't get it. God comes after us, and we're like, no, get away. But what does God do? He continues to pursue us. He just keeps coming. And, and how does he do it? With mercy and grace and love. And sometimes the parental thump. Any of you have a dad that, like, sat behind you in church when you are growing up? You know, he'd start talking. Yeah. My dad wore a ring and he'd turn it over. Every now and then God has to do that with us, but it's always done in love and mercy to draw us toward him. He didn't wait for us to figure it out. He pursued us. Now that should make you feel good. Even while we were dead in trespasses, God was rich in mercy. He looked at us and says, they are a mess. They're messing everything up. I made a wonderful world and they're breaking it. I need to go down and save them from themselves. This is such a huge moment for us to understand in Scripture is that God did not set some kind of arbitrary standard to say, you know what, those who figured this out, they can be saved. Those who achieve this level of, of, of moral rectitude can be saved. The people who can do this can be saved. What was it? He said, whosoever believes will be saved. It's open to everybody. And so listen to how this love that God has for us that didn't wait is described by Paul in Romans 5, 6 through 8. It says, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. You might get somebody in this world to say, man, that person is so good that I'll offer myself in place. He says it might happen once in this world. Though for, a per, for perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When we were at our lowest, that's when Christ said, I got you. I am dying for you. I know what you've done. 
I know who you are. I know how bad you've messed it up. I know what the world has been like. I know how dark it is, and I'm coming for you. And he offered himself on the cross while we were still his enemies. So he means it when he says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. He practiced it because all of humanity was his enemy. Even those who thought they were his friends, as we'll find out on our Good Friday service. Even those who thought, I'm in good and I love him, even they were his enemies in that moment. But here's the great thing is God did not wait. He did not demand something first. He didn't punish us first and then move. He started the process of salvation while we were still 100% his enemies. And so Paul wants us to understand two major truths before we can really dig into the meat of this letter. Okay, and this is he's setting the stage for the rest of Ephesians here. And that is one, we were lost in trespasses and sins. That if I'm beating a dead horse, understand that horse needs beaten. Because we don't understand he's dead. When the Bible says we were dead in trespasses and sins, understand that means that all traces of that which was good that God made in us was tainted and was now in rebellion and dead, spiritually dead. There is nothing that we could bring to God and say, look what I did. He's, the Bible says all our righteous works, even in our best moment, when we are being our most altruistic, when we are, we are just trying to help the world as best we can, apart from Christ, it's still sinful. We're doing it for some reason other than God's glory. We're doing it for ourselves. We're doing it for some other reason. And so it says all our righteousness is like filthy rags before God. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. He wants us to understand that. And then two, he wants us to understand that God acted to save us based on nothing more than his own character. That is love and mercy. He didn't act to save us because we did something to deserve it. He didn't act to save us because there was a subset of people that were better than the other. He didn't act to save anybody for any reason other than he says, I love them and I want them in eternity with me. That's it. And when we get those two things, it leads to the very next statement in this section of Scripture where he says, by grace, you have been saved. You see, he's summing up the entire letter of Ephesians with one sentence right here, and he repeats it twice in this section. But he says, by grace, you have been saved. And you know, the great thing is right here is that word saved is a powerful word in the Greek. It's in what's called the perfect tense, which means it's something that happened in the past with continuing results into the present. There's a moment you were saved and you remain saved, and it continues to apply for the rest of your life and into eternity. It never stops. To be saved is not just one moment, hey, okay, now my sins are forgiven and I just go on with life. He's saying you got saved and something in you changed. You became a new creation. And now you will go through the rest of your life as this new creation because of what Jesus did for you on the cross. It is something that happened in the past with continuing results. And so he says, he made us alive together with Christ. 
Our lives are linked to his. Our spirits are made alive by the Holy Spirit. Men and women outside of Christ were the objects of divine wrath, worthy of judgment and condemnation. And apart from Christ, will receive judgment and condemnation. God, do not believe for one moment that God has ever stopped his hatred of sin. That God has, will ever hold back his judgment of sin. Just because he is waiting to execute that judgment does not mean that that judgment will be any less when it comes. You know why he's waiting? Because God being rich in mercy and the great love with which he loved us, saved us, and is giving us an opportunity to come to a saving knowledge of his son. And so, we were in bondage to evil, evil powers, but then Paul says, but God has seated us with Christ in the heavenly realms. There is a whole component to our salvation that we don't see yet. We can only read about it. We can only see the truth that God has given us. But there's a whole side to our salvation that has yet to be revealed. And Paul is giving us a glimpse of it right here when he says that we are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. He's telling us that we have a whole new standing with God. A whole different reality that, that when this age is over, what is revealed is going to be so much beyond what we can even imagine. That really all we can say right now is that God has bigger plans than just our lives. And don't turn salvation into something that's primarily about this life because it's not. It does involve this life, and I am not belittling this life, and, and Christ gives us the strength and the wisdom and, and his spirit and, and his guidance to get us through this life so that we can represent him and we can have an impact for his kingdom and, and we can experience his love and his grace and his goodness now. But understand, God has much bigger plans than just now. Jesus didn't die on the cross just so that we could clean up this world a bit. He died on the cross to bring in the kingdom of God. And one day that kingdom will show itself in a way that is going to literally blow everybody away. What Paul has said is that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man what God has planned for those who love him. There is something that God's got going. But you know what he says? But we do have the mind of Christ. So if you want a glimpse into the plans that God has, you've got to look to Jesus. You've got to listen to him. You've got to study. You've got to read his apostles' words. And, and this picture starts to emerge of God saying, oh, just pay the price now. Bend your knee to him now. And I promise you it's going to be worth it. Now, Paul says we are seated with Christ you see, one of the great things about Paul here is in his life, Paul received direct revelation from God. And we see in, first, in, in the book of 2 Corinthians, he talks about a man who he knew, he's talking about himself, who he says was caught up to the third heaven. Third heaven in the Jewish mindset was where God is. It's what we call heaven. 
Okay, the first heaven is, is the air where the birds live. Second heaven was like outer space as we understand it, where, where the stars and everything are. Third heaven is where God hangs out. And he says, I knew a man who was caught up into the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. But he says he saw things that are unlawful to tell. God gave him a revelation of eternity, of heaven. He's like, now, now you keep that to yourself. That's just for you. Could you imagine that? God's like, hey, that's just for you. Now, Paul was going to have an incredibly difficult life, and he, he needed that vision of heaven to be able to lead others. And so now you get it in letters like this where he says things like, oh, he seated us with Christ in the heavenly realms. And we're like, what's that mean, Paul? He's like, you'll find out. I, that's all I can say. I can't tell you anymore because God told me not to. But he has seated us with Christ. You, you're going to want to be a part of this. And it's what gave Paul strength to be able to withstand the incredible persecution and the imprisonment and the suffering and everything that he went through in life. And he's able to say through all of it, oh, God's good. Yeah, God is good. I am, I suffer, but you know what? It, it even says, I don't consider these light and momentary afflictions to be worthy, to be compared to what's going to be revealed. You see, he had such a bigger view of life because of what God had given him. And I understand, for us, it may seem a little unfair. We're like, well, give me that. Well, that's where faith comes in. We have the mind of Christ. We have the scripture. We can comb these scriptures and look and get this kind of glimpse of these greater things that God has for us. And so listen closely. With, with that in mind, listen closely to what he says in Ephesians 2, 6, and 7 because this truth is almost universally ignored about God having bigger plans. And it's ignored because we get so focused on this life that we forget that God is working on a much larger scale. And this is one of the things Paul reminds us here. He says, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's not all. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward whom? Us in Christ Jesus. Does that excite anybody? That, that God, the creator of the universe, who could speak creation into existence, who is an unlimited power, who is an unlimited grace, unlimited kindness, unlimited in his very being, says he wants to show us the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. See, God has a banquet and a party planned for heaven. And I'm going to tell you, the creator of the universe knows how to throw a party. And when there's no sin, and there's no death, and there's no darkness that's going to cloud anything, but it's just God's grace, and His power, and His majesty, and His goodness, and His love that's driving everything, it's in those moments that we're like, yeah, sign me up. I want to be a part of this. Because God isn't finished. God's grace will continue even after this age is finished. We live in the, the present age. There's this age and the age to come. And he says in the age to come, God wants to show you the immeasurable riches of his grace. 
So if it's immeasurable, what does that mean? It means without measure. That means never ending. So how long does it take to show the immeasurable riches? Let's say it takes an eternity. Kind of sounds like heaven, right? Like he's like, hey, I just got this figured out and for just going off forever, forever without end. I'm going to show you all the ways that I can be kind and graceful towards you. That's God's promise. That's what happened at salvation. That process started. And so that should inspire us to want to reach higher to the things of God and say, God, I want to experience all of it that I can. I want to know you. I want to know what's waiting for me. And I want to get as many people as I can to join me so that they can go and experience this too. That is who we are. And so, this is our hope. This is our hope. This is the anchor of our soul. Whether good times or bad, whatever we are facing in life, this is the true north that we return to no matter what. That my God is good. I deserved death. I didn't get death. I got reborn. I'm remade in Jesus Christ. And I have a hope for all eternity that God, in his immeasurable richness of his mercy and kindness and grace and love, wants me with him. And so God's work, and please get this, God's work is not about primarily improving life on earth. It's not. And that's not even what our prayers are to be about, is about improving life on earth. What is it? It's about his kingdom and the grace and kindness he's going to share with his people for all eternity. So that's why Jesus told us, pray this, your kingdom come, your will be done. Because what is his will? To show grace and kindness and mercy and love to all of those who believe. And so we've got to get our eyes off of just this world. It's about more than this world. It's about the collision of eternity with this world. And one day, this world's just going to give way. Eternity will prove to be too much. And this world will give way to that which is real and is lasting and is immovable. And so with that in mind, I want you to hear a very common verse, but I want you to think of it in kind of a new way now. Okay? Because he wants us to understand this and even admits that right now, this life, we don't see all of it clearly. We have glimpses of it, but we don't see it all. So listen, in 1 Corinthians 13, 8 through 12, he says, love never ends. That's important. This isn't just about the warm fuzzies that we get and when we're in love and, and we just, oh, we, you know, that's, he's saying, no, this, this love that God has, genuine love that God, that flows from his character does not stop. It has no end. It is infinite in its existence because God is love. This one says love never ends. And so he says, as for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. That's now. But when the perfect comes, the kingdom, the partial will pass away. See, life as we know, it's going to go away. It will end. We're not going to need Bible studies anymore. You will need it. You know why? Because knowledge will pass away. You're going to know. Why? Because God's going to be right there. 
you will be in his presence. Where there's prophecy and we get these words from God and, and we, we're not sure, you know, hey, it kind of applies now, but it also applies to the future. What's the full meaning? He says, hey, you don't have to worry about that anymore. God's communication is going to be so clear, it will just be understood throughout all of eternity. You won't need a mediator. You won't need somebody to teach you. Because God himself is going to do it. And so he says, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. So he says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. He's telling us right here that we are like children right now. But when heaven comes, when the kingdom fully comes, for those who are in Christ Jesus, you will put away the childish and become fully grown in your existence. Now that's something to think deeply about. We're all spiritually children right now. According to Paul right here, this world's existence right now is, is just the, the glimpse. And so the greatest moment you've experienced in Christ is a childlike moment compared to what awaits when we all grow up in God's presence. When we become what we're going to be. And we will put away childish ways and enter fully into the unlimited presence of God. And so when this happens, when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Something much better, something grander awaits us in the kingdom. But for now, Paul says we see in a mirror dimly. We only see parts of the kingdom. And they're still more glorious than anything on earth. But we only see parts. We're, we're just seeing a little bit. We just see glimpses. We're seeing that reflection at a distance. It's like, yeah, I, I see it, but I can't quite make it all out. And Paul even admits, yeah, that's what we see right now. But that's not what will always be. And so let me explain to you a little bit what that means. It's that right now when God feels distant, that's part of what that is. It's us seeing dimly. We don't understand the full truth of his omnipresence, that he's always right there, that he is never far away. That's just us not seeing reality the way it really is, not understanding reality fully and understanding it like children. And like children, we become afraid of the dark because we think that somehow the father is now absent when he's not. He's there. And how many of us, you know, remember you have children or or grandchildren, you know, and, and you turn off the light and they're afraid of the darkness. Don't, don't leave. And we sit in the dark with them to reassure them. You know what? That's all of us right now. When as you get older, you realize like, oh, you know, just because my parent left the room didn't mean that they didn't care for me anymore. They're still keeping me safe. They're still watching out for my, my best interests, my well-being. They still care. That's us right now with God. And, and he says there's coming a day when we will grow spiritually into and become what he fully intends for us, but it won't be in this world. And so what do we do? 
where we look to the gospel and we see the love, the grace, the mercy, the patience, and the power of God on full display. And we see that nothing compares to it. We keep looking to Jesus, and what we do is we accept the gift and we start reaching. And I mean that, accept the gift and start reaching. Because here are probably the the most important verses, verses 8 through 10 in Ephesians. The most important ones. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The key to the Christian life is realizing at the outset that this is all about God's work and not ours. It's about his character and not ours. Our character was established the moment we sinned. Established, okay, written in stone. That's who we are. But what is God's character? Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, saved us, came after us. And once we understand and celebrate God's work for us through the cross, we then begin to understand our calling to his kingdom. Paul states the greatest truth of Ephesians here and summarizes the entire letter in three verses. God's grace is the foundation and reason for everything and leads us to a new life, a new purpose, and a new lifestyle that God himself has designed. Is God in charge of your life? Or do we go to God saying, hey, God, make this work out, and if you could make my life look like this over here, then I'd, you know, I'd be happy. And do, God is not our contractor. We don't get to tell him how to design our life. We're his. He designs it to his glory and for his purposes, for his kingdom. And you know what? That's always a good thing. That is always a good thing. And so there's a personal application here to salvation. He, he just took the greatest truth, the greatest spiritual truth that you will find, that we are saved by grace through faith, not of works, so no one can boast. None of us can stand up to God and say, hey, I'm a good person, look what I did. None of us. That is the greatest anchor to the soul that we will have. But then he takes the personal application, he slams them together, and he says what? We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. God has a life for us. Once we accept Christ and we are born again, the new life begins, and it's a life that He has for us that we are to obey and walk in. And it's a good thing, it's a good life. And so, there's something that I think is awesome about this verse. When it says that we are His workmanship, In the Greek, that word is poema. It's where we get the English word poem. We are his work of art. You are his work of art that he wants to display to the world. And that is the the complete person, your lifestyle, your thought process, your intellect, your emotions, your gifts, everything about you God wants to craft and is going to craft and wants to put you on display as his workmanship, his craftsmanship to the world. I think that's beautiful. That God is molding each and every individual life to fit into his kingdom in an individual way, 
in which we work together and we are the body of Christ and none is above the other and yet each has its own specific purpose and and work and, and presence that is unique and individual within the body. We all have the place in which we fit, in which we function in the body of Christ and each one is special. And so God not only planned the gospel and salvation by grace through faith in Jesus before the foundation of the world, he also planned the life that you would live after salvation. He planned it. Your life is not happening by chance. Now, some of you say, wow, that's some, uh, my life's been pretty rough. He didn't say it would be easy. And he didn't say he was going to remove all hardship from your life. What he's saying is, I'm planning a way for you to get through those hardships. I'm planning on making you the kind of person that's going to shine my light in the middle of that storm. And you're going to be an example to those around you of how to handle these things. And no, you're not going to get it perfect. Nobody does. You know what? That's why we have grace. Because by grace, we're saved. And we're going to reflect that grace to him. And so he says, nobody's going to be able to boast... And yet we're going to live this life intentionally for his kingdom. And what I find here is the great truth of the Christian life is that humility and boldness coexist in the new man. Humility because we're saved by grace and we can bring nothing to the table and we're grateful because God has done everything that he's going to do. And boldness because I'm saved, I can now live for him and I have his spirit and I'm sealed and I'm seated with Christ and I know who I am and I am not backing down to evil in this world, and I will not compromise with it, but I'm going to show the love of God and the grace of God, and and I'm going to literally show who God is because I don't matter. I don't need people to know my name. I want people to know the name of Jesus Christ, and I'll use every breath that I have to try to accomplish that. Humility and boldness coexist perfectly in God's plan for us. That's what it means to be saved, sealed, and seated with Christ. Is that we live for now for the kingdom of God, knowing that one day we're going to experience that kingdom firsthand, and it's going to be beyond anything we can imagine. It's going to go beyond anything we can imagine. Now, so people ask me sometimes, hey, do you think this will be in heaven? And I say, no. Well, why not? Because you can imagine it. It says, no mind is conceived what God has stored for those who love him. So they're like, well, but I I really, you know, my mansion, it says a mansion. Trust me, it's not what you think. If it's understood in these worldly terms, it's not in heaven because what's going to be in heaven is so far greater that we can't even get there without God's help. So let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for today. God, thank you for the opportunity, God, to gather together. And Lord, I pray that you put within our heart, God, anchor the truth that we are saved by grace through faith. That it's not of us. We didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. That it is by grace that we have been saved. Lord, help us to embrace the good works, the life that you have for us then. That we wouldn't get distracted by the things of this world, God. That we wouldn't overvalue the things of this world. But God, we would value your kingdom, your truth, and let it guide us. Let it make us 
into the people you want us to be. God, help us to embrace the idea of us being your workmanship, your works of art that you want to display to the world. That, God, humility and boldness would exist together and work together in our lives as we live for your kingdom. God, help us to live each day with the knowledge that we are saved, sealed, and seated with Christ. God, it's in Jesus' name we pray this together. Amen.